On this episode of the Politics, Politics, Politics program, we are discussing the rise of the double doubters. And are we in the era of the Trump moderate? A lot of general election talk and maybe a little discussion about the coup. It's coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, June 28th, 2023. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you here in Austin, Texas. And we're going to look ahead a little bit because we're in we're in a bit of a lull when it comes to the primary. More specifically, it's, um, you know, like that meme where there's a person poking something with a stick and just says, do something. That's kind of where we are right now with the primary. We had two events that could have shaken things up. Ron DeSantis getting in the race, Donald Trump getting indicted again. And yet either really has. And so we turn our eyes to the next thing that could change things the debates and everything that goes along around that. But since it's not even July yet, and that happens in late August, we're going to move ahead. So so there were a few things that came to my attention. And one of them is a memo, a memo written by David Sosnick. He is somebody that is a influential thinker. Washington, D.C., somebody whose opinions on elections are very well respected. He was highlighted in the Politico memo this morning. And specifically, he highlights one demographic that could change the election. Demographic that needs to be paid attention to, if not explicitly catered to. Yet, that will be very, very hard if our general election is Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Because this is the rise of the double doubters. (laughs) People who don't like Biden and don't like Trump. And it's, at least in my world, an extraordinarily significant slice of the electorate. because. Whether I am talking to people that lean right or lean left, the idea of, well, I'm not in love with either of them, but seems to be prevalent. And obviously, this is something that is not new. We have long had the idea that when it comes to presidential candidates, we are not sending our best. But let let me go ahead and read from Sosnick's memo. People who have a negative view of both Biden and Trump are perhaps the most important group of swing voters in the upcoming election. And this is not an insignificant voting block. 
In an ABC Ipsos poll taken after Trump's most recent indictment, a majority of the country had a negative view of both Biden and Trump, with only 31 percent having a favorable view of both candidates. I have to say on a personal note that Sosnick's memo makes me uncomfortable because it puts me in a position to understand a position I generally loathe. And that is the desperate, greedy move from both major parties to quash third parties. Now, I give a lot of guff to third parties on this podcast because I often think that they are more just happy to be there than actually trying to win elections. But those are hard. And the infrastructure that Republicans and Democrats have give them a tremendous advantage, not to mention ballot access. But if we are looking at double doubters being the key demographic for both parties to cater to, then that means the existence of a third party is an existential threat for either candidate, and more specifically, Sosnick puts it, for the Democrats. In Sosnick's mind, Donald Trump cannot win in the eight key swing states if Biden doesn't dominate the anti-Trump vote, siphon off even just a touch of it, and he is in significant trouble. We go back to Sosnick's memo. One factor that could redefine the presidential election is the introduction of a third-party candidate. Biden's narrow margin of victory in 2020, the nature of his support, and how evenly divided the country remains all contribute to the potential impact of a third-party option. Trump can't win without a third-party candidate dividing the anti-Trump vote. With the exception of winning Georgia in 2016 with 50.77 of the vote, Trump never reached 50% in any of the competitive states that determined the outcome of the last two presidential elections. In the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton lost that key double-doubter swing group vote by 17 points, with 9% of the vote going to minor party candidates. And in 2020, with no viable third-party option, Biden carried those double-doubters by 15 points. I would greatly encourage you guys to read this whole memo because there's a lot of other stuff in here, including the fact that Donald Trump actually has a gigantic lead in people who are voting for a candidate. But let's stay on this third party idea for a second. This is the reason why the Democrats are attempting to strangle the no labels party in the crib. Also, for the first time, I read another name of a candidate for whom could be the no-labels candidate nationwide. Not only just Joe Manchin being whispered about, but maybe could Hogan be the third man? Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, who decided not to run in the GOP primary. That would be very interesting. Hogan randomly was out on uh, in, in, in the press over the weekend, taking big shots at Ron DeSantis, which seems more like an embittered Republican as opposed to a 
third way type of candidate, but who knows? It's not just no labels, though. Cornell West, who we covered here as being part of the People's Party, has now announced that he is going to be on the ballot with the Green Party. The Green Party, which has ballot access in a lot of the key states that the Democrats desperately need. And here's something else the Cornell West has. A charisma that Ralph Nader and Jill Stein didn't. If the Democrats want to go head-to-head in the press and make Cornell West an absolute villain in this race, nobody that has been in the position that he is in right now with that party will be as forceful, entertaining, and elegant in rebutting it. I am hereby putting Cornell West at my highest level of election meme watch. He is too good and has been doing this stuff too long. He is a great quote, and he just needs one to go viral to stick in the heads of enough people in North Carolina, Michigan, Nevada, Georgia, at all, to possibly do severe damage to Joe Biden's campaign. So, what are you saying here, Justin? Are you saying that you're buying into the idea that this is an election too important for a third-party candidate? That maybe some of these folks, either through no labels or through the Green Party or through whatever Mad Max Thunderdome situation is going to determine the libertarian candidate, that they should just step down, step aside, let this be a mano e mano contest? Hell no! My position remains the same throughout all of this. If you are the Democrats and you are terrified, my only question to you would be, what else would you like in terms of advantages? Would you like a bigger brand name, more ties to the media, more ballot access? The fact that we have a 30-year history of people just reflexively scorning third parties? No, you've got it all. You're the Yankees who just got a rod. There's no position for which you are weak, except for the ones that you control. You control your platform. You control your candidate. And it just so happens that your candidate is very unpopular And the people for whom you are expecting to vote for him will have to be dragged to the ballot box to do so. So, their strategy of toxifying Donald Trump even further than he has been toxified is something that we will keep an eye on. Because at least based on this memo, it seems to be their best chance to win. But. What if, beyond the personal, and let's do our best to say beyond the legal, we look under the hood of Donald Trump's support. 
What if I were to tell you that Donald Trump has always been a moderate candidate, at least more moderate than his party, and he is growing even more moderate as we enter into this election, one that will be determined by independence. We explore all that right after this. This is your update, brought to you, as always, by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. It's where you can support this show. It's where you can double the amount of episodes that you get each and every week. Head on over there right now for $3. It's about the price of a cup of coffee. You get double the episodes. Custom RSS feed. You enter it once into your RSS reader, and it just works. You know? And I got to tell you, I've been dealing with some hellacious RSS issues, uh, trying to migrate the We're Not Wrong podcast, an absolute crap show. Anyway, trust me, uh, uh, Patreon is your friend. (laughs) If you like something and you just want to make sure that A, you support it, and B, you always get it, I'll tell you this, as a content creator, patrons always get fed first. So, with that, let's go ahead and get to your update. CNN exclusively obtained the audio recording of the 2021 meeting in Bedminster, New Jersey, where President Donald Trump discusses holding secret documents that he did not declassify. The recording, which first aired on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, includes new details from the conversation that is a critical piece of evidence in the special counsel Jack Smith's indictment of Trump over the mishandling of classified information, including a moment when Trump seems to indicate he was holding a secret Pentagon document with plans to attack Iran. We play this audio for you right now. These are bad, sick people. That, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started they, right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were All trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right, trying to overthrow your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Yeah. <laughs> I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Yeah. But look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she said it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. And, you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? He's in the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to 
declassified. Figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. But now I can't, you know. But this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so. I'm look. We here and I have. And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. incredible, right? No. Hey, bring some. Uh, bring some cokes in, please. My first question: How in the hell did this get out? I got a theory. I have no idea. But if this is something that had been floating around, maybe in Trump or Republican circles, then that makes sense that it ends up on CNN. If this leaked from the legal side of it, from the government side of it, that's really gross. Or maybe it leaked from the Trump side. Maybe maybe the Trump side believes that this exonerates them. That was their comment on it, was that this was something that would exonerate them. It certainly seems like it's exactly what I expected by reading the transcript, which is that Donald Trump wants to brag about cool stuff that happened while president or feels intensely triggered by somebody trying to lie on him and wants to show the receipts. He is a clapback queen, Donald Trump. Uh, obviously much more on that. As this case does look like it is at least rolling forward in the rocket docket sense of the term. Moving on. The U.S. Supreme Court has denied a legal argument that would have empowered state legislatures to unilaterally establish rules for federal elections, including the creation of congressional maps potentially skewed by partisan gerrymandering. This ruling was passed on a 6-3 vote with Chief Justice John Roberts stating that the Constitution doesn't provide state legislatures immunity from standard limitations imposed by state law. The case, known as Moore versus Harper, revolved around the independent state legislature theory, which purports that no other state institution can modify a legislature's decision regarding federal elections. The theory has been invoked in defense of a North Carolina voting map that was initially dismissed as a partisan gerrymander by that state's Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme uh, Court's refusal to immediately intervene in the case led to a November election in North Carolina conducted under the map drawn by the state court-appointed experts, leading to an evenly split congressional de delegation that more accurately reflected the state's partisan composition. Republican lawmakers appealed to the Supreme Court, arguing that the state court had no right to question the legislature's decisions. However, the Supreme Court has maintained jurisdiction in this case. Roberts reiterated that state courts could continue to hear cases involving partisan gerrymandering, suggesting that provisions in state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply. The ruling is consistent with the 2015 decision in the Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, where the court upheld the right of Arizona voters to establish an independent redistricting commission to counter partisan gerrymandering. So that means that that you know we're, we're going to continue to see some check on the legislature. And you would imagine that this would embolden pushes to do more of these 
in more states. So with all that, we got Trump audio. We got a, a breaking Supreme Court ruling as I am recording. Let's go ahead and talk about what would have been the entire episode if we weren't in a world where political and election news is actually happening. And that is the coup in Russia. For, for many of you, I went to bed late on Friday night. My wife was out of town, which means I was just feral, just staying up too late, you know, playing video games. But all of a sudden, Twitter's going insane because there's apparently a coup in Moscow. So I turn on CNN and this, this is when CNN is the best until you realize that they're just swinging from vine to vine with a random expert who is picking up the phone. But still being able to get a real time analysis of something like that is the reason why that channel was invented. I was happy to watch it, including one moment where somebody was saying, you know, I'm talking to everybody because at this point it's like five o'clock in the morning, Moscow time. I'm talking to my contacts in Moscow. They have been at the nightclubs all night. And while they say that the streets are calm, it's all anyone can talk about. Which is just such a funny visual. Imagine a bunch of Russian bros falling out of some nightclub, dusting off their nostrils. And whatever babbling nonsense is coming out of their mouths immediately to this guy, which gets disseminated nation and worldwide as the state of Moscow. But if you were under a rock, here's what happened. The Wagner group is a group of mercenaries, one of many in Russia that are used not only for the war in Ukraine, which is where they were most recently, but also historically have been used throughout the world, including Africa. Evgeny Prigozhin is the head of the Wagner group. And he decided to roll into what is known as the CENTCOM or Central Command for Russia's effort in Ukraine and essentially took it over. That's a military town he walked in without a shot being fired, just said, I'm the captain now, and no one disagreed. He then rode to Moscow. Now, there's a lot of questions about this. Did he seriously want to try and overthrow Putin? Is there something else that we are not understanding? Rogozhin has had a long-standing feud with some other members of the Russian military, but even understanding of the Russian military is something that I have found is in short supply when we are talking about the war in Ukraine, probably not great, and especially when we're talking about inter-organizational fights, which is what happened over the weekend. So, I am instead going to read a summary of a great tweet thread that I read over the weekend that is consistent with some other emails that I got and the best that I can make of it. This is Tatiana Stanovaya, senior fellow at the Carnegie Russia Center. She said that Prigozhin's moves were made out of desperation after heavy losses in Bakhmut and the state machine turning against him. So let's understand what that is before we go further. Wagner Group had taken Bakhmut, a non-strategic but emotionally important 
area of the war in Ukraine and then lost it. They suffered tremendous losses there, needed more aid from the government, didn't get it. So let's take one more step back and explain how I understand, based on a very, very helpful emailer, the Russian military in general. Vladimir Putin has been in charge for decades, either on the dais or in the shadows. And the way that you do that is by having a bunch of other people that are very powerful but not as powerful as you be played against each other. That is apparently what Putin has done with an organization that he desperately fears, the military. Because in general, when you're a dictator, if anyone's going to overthrow you, it's usually the military. So the military, the Russian military, the vaunted Russian military, is in large part dominated by other mercenary groups. Wagner being one of them. And you know, one of them, I believe, is run by the gas company. <laughs> but like, they're, they're, there's, there's a bunch of them. And there's internal fighting about that. And that is apparently at the root of why Prigozhin was upset and why he was was very, very, very pointed about saying that that the war in Ukraine was not being fought for the right reasons. And that's why he was going to go to Moscow. Big point that Prigozhin never said Putin was the problem. He said people around Putin was the problem. So, according to Stanovaya. Prigozhin wanted to put himself in a negotiation position with Putin, who had largely ignored his feud with the Ministry of Defense. And she believes that this does deal a severe blow to Vladimir Putin because it shows he is not in control and his strategy of allowing the people below him to fight with each other without him intervening has now blown up in his face. That being said, she had this to say. I want to emphasize that the image has always been secondary for Putin. Setting optics aside, Putin objectively resolved the Wagner and Prigozhin problem by dissolving the former and expelling the latter. The situation would have been far worse if it had culminated in a bloody mess in the outskirts of Moscow. Which brings us back to the negotiation position part of this. So what was the ride to Moscow? Essentially, it was Prigozhin daring Putin to solve this problem now. Because you now have a choice, Vladdy Daddy. You can either kill a bunch of good troops that would otherwise just be, you know, Russian. Not Wagner, but you just fold them in to either another militia or uh, to, to the Russian military such as it is. Along with all the equipment. So either you're going to get your friend Lukashenko in Belarus to say that I can have a nice little country house and my own chef. Or you're going to be forced to shred your own military, either cut off your nose to spite your face or give me a golden parachute. And that's allegedly what happened. Least best that I could tell. But, you know, obviously, how is anybody going to know, right? They're the inventors of Kremlinology. 
us not knowing what the hell they're up to is a feature, not a bug. And that is our update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you support the show. Head on over there and get the $3 level. Get two bonus episodes. Come on. What are you doing? All right. I'm going to start in a weird place on this one, but I think we're going to stick the landing. Here's where we're going to start. Quoting from Politico. House Freedom Caucus members took a momentous vote Friday on Marjorie Taylor Greene's future with the group, according to three people familiar with the matter. It's not yet clear whether or not she has been officially ejected. The right flank group took up Greene's status amid an internal push, first reported by Politico, to consider purging members who are inactive or at odds with the Freedom Caucus. Green's close allies spoke with Speaker Kevin McCarthy and her accompanying criticism of colleagues in the group and has put her on opposite sides of the block that made its name opposing GOP leadership. So let me make this clear. Marjorie Green is at odds with the Freedom Caucus. You know, the group of rabble-rousing, right-leaning, this-can't-be-business-as-usual, House Republicans, that group, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the freewheeling, this can't be business as usual, rabble rousing House Republican. She's being kicked out of that group because she is aligned with Donald Trump. Now, of course, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and Chip Roy, they're all aligned with Donald Trump, too. But Marjorie Taylor Greene is really aligned with Donald Trump. Like lockstep aligned with Donald Trump, like might be his vice presidential nomination aligned with Donald Trump. So when Trump supported McCarthy in his speaker fight, Green supported McCarthy and she was forceful about it. One of the big things that has led to this fight between Green and the Freedom Caucus are clashes she's had with Lauren Boebert. Marjorie Taylor Greene called Lauren Boebert a little bitch on the floor of the House last week. But fighting on the House floor is normal. And I apologize for anybody who's listening with kids, but consider that a civics lesson. Fighting amongst House factions is as well, even if it's not always reported on. But what I'm interested in is that idea that being lockstep aligned with Donald Trump, which, by the way, also calls for, like, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has called for Joe Biden's impeachment. She has called for Merrick Garland's impeachment. And the clash she had with Boebert was about when and how. But still, there is... A cleavage, a line in the sand, a divide between these two schools of thought. So it got me thinking. Is the modern world where you just do as Donald Trump says and does more moderate? Has it left the Freedom Caucus behind? Or is this just personal animus and tactics? 
Well, let's take a stroll down the idea of the Trump moderate. And if we're going to do that, we got to start with 2016. Because Trump took two extraordinarily specific moderate positions in that race. First, he was anti-Iraq war. And more specifically, wary of, and he used this term, forever wars. Now, at that time, being anti-Iraq war was a mainstream Democratic position. In fact, it's probably one of the things that helped garner Donald Trump's approval with the people that voted for him in 2016, because Hillary Clinton was far more forcefully for the Iraq war than Donald Trump was, even though Donald Trump was. But at this point in the race, they were both anti-Iraq war, but it was more novel for Trump to be saying it because his party had defended it. And the forever war stuff. I mean, hell that's, that's a progressive thought. Even today, you never hear Biden mentioning forever wars. Probably because he's perpetuating forever wars. The other big moderate position that Trump took in 2016 was rejecting the orthodoxy on entitlement reform. This is the the Paul Ryan, oh, we, the, to, to, to balance our books, we're going to need to take on entitlement reform. If we take on entitlement reform, then that means we're going to have to reform Social Security. We have to reform all these other stuff. Trump took a hard pivot away from that idea. And he effectively has reshaped the Republican Party to say they will never touch Social Security. That is a huge cudgel that the Democrats have used to beat the Republicans for decades. So, okay. He said that then whether or not he actually followed through on his rhetoric is is another conversation, right? That's governing. We're talking about elections. So, so far in this election, in this primary, he has taken one very specific, more moderate position than anyone else in this race up till now. Or at least his lack of a decision is a decision. Abortion, the issue that defined the 2022 race. Trump has not indicated a position on the matter, a non-decision that speaks volumes. Because it's an uncharacteristic hedge. He's usually the guy who says the thing. And instead, he's talked about how Republicans need to get smarter talking about it. He criticized Ron DeSantis' signing of a six-week abortion law in Florida. Now, let's take a step back here from the idea of the Trump moderate and talk about abortion in 2024 for a second. Because it is my belief that this issue in this election could be the most transformative on that topic that we've had in recent years. I genuinely believe, as I've said on this podcast for a long time, that we are as a people, as uh, Americans, closer to agreeing on the general elements of abortion than we are further away. 
and without Roe versus Wade to be the thing that is the bouncer guarding us from getting into actually hashing this out and a presidential election that will be a catalyst for a lot of conversation, I believe we could be dangerously close to actually making progress on this as opposed to simply being farmed for donations and votes by special interest groups and political parties. Let's go back to that memo we were talking about in the first segment. In a mid-June Gallup poll, 69% of respondents and 74% of independents said that abortion should be legal in the first three months of pregnancy. The highest level in the history of their polls. Well, that you'd look at that and you're like, oh, well, that's a huge win for Democrats. You know, if, if people are more dialed in about abortion, then they are going to vote more for the party that are the staunch defenders of the right for a woman to get one. Meanwhile, this weekend at the Faith and Freedom Conference, where all of the Republican candidates gathered and spoke to the evangelical crowd, Mike Pence, who's doing his best to be the most churchy man in the race, called for a federal abortion law. You'd think that'd be on the opposite side of it, but here's what he said. We must not rest until, and, and we must not relent until we restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law and every state in this country. Every Republican candidate for president should support a ban on abortion after 15 weeks as a minimum national standard. That would put a federal law on the other side of the public perception of it. 15 weeks over 12. The record, the vast majority of abortions occurred during that first trimester of pregnancy. In 2022, 93% of them occurred during the first trimester. That is at or before 13 weeks of gestation, according to the CDC. And for the record, the outlier on the earliest a baby has been born and lived was 21 weeks. So we're not talking about a ton of time here. And if we get to a point where we are saying, okay, Three months, that is something that everybody is demanding. And Mike Pence is supposed to be the evangelical firebrand. And he's saying 15. It just says to me that I believe this election could lead to actual productive consensus in a weird way. And that Trump is probably going to come in on this more moderate than Pence least based on the way he's talking now. So let's say it's a, a, a 15 week guideline, but it's exceptions and stuff like that. And Trump has said he's for exceptions. Or maybe it's 20 weeks. Maybe it's literally that line of viability. Maybe Trump decides to shoot the gap and say, here's a law. It's 21 weeks which essentially would be, depending on how you read it, actually Roe versus Wade. A moderate candidate on this issue has the chance to be a generational consensus maker. 
because I believe this country will eventually get to a consensus. And if I were betting, I would say that that consensus is probably in line with some of the other Western European nations that have settled this. Now, we're well into fan fiction at this point because I'm trying to read the tea leaves of where we're going to go down the road. My point is, is that Trump has always been more of a moderate candidate than the Republicans before him. And it appears that even after he remodeled the entire party in his image, he still might be. Does any of this matter amongst the personal animus and legal entanglements? Maybe not. Probably not. But to assume that Trump is the furthest right of the 2024 crop, something you will assuredly hear during the cacophony of noise that will happen during this race, would be to willfully deny both his record and his rhetoric. Or at least when his rhetoric is about policy and not, you know, everything else. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you'd like to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is px3tweets. You can email me, or sorry, tweet me. Tweet me, dog, personally, at Justin R. Young. You can see me live on Twitch, px3live. And you can follow my Substack, px3newsletter.com. I've had a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a little break as things as things have slowed down I'm working on some other projects anyway I'll be writing this week you can share this podcast with your friends family and clergy px3podcast.com if you'd like to hit me with a one time donation it is paypal.me slash pay venmo is justin-young-20 cash app is px3cash and if you'd like to send me anything in the mail we've got some great signs Political signs. Oh, man. I got a Bush Quail 88, a Bush Quail 92. You can send me anything you want. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas. 78715. Make it out to Justin Young. Or else the people at the post office get weird. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas. 78715. Of course, we can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks on the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, El Basso, Matthew T., John, Craig Potts, MC Radio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafe DB Level, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, DB4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Star, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100-mile runner. Idris Arzlanian, Blue Front and the Lanina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, is awesome. Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Who Loves Frank, Got Abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you want your name read on the show? Head on over there. Take advantage of it. And it's about time that we refresh those names. So if you are a $10 tier subscriber, get ready. I'll be sending you guys 
all the info to uh, see what you want your name to be, at least for the first part of this primary. But that's it. That's it for us. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.